Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, it's a Tuesday episode, so Hugo, of course, is here, but so is our friend Bob Greenlee. Bob, hey. how's it going? Great, thank you. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. So um, I wrote a column, I don't know, a week or two ago called Public Sector, Private Sector, Nonprofit Sector. Where can you have the biggest impact? So you can imagine this was a sensation in the National Enquirer. Um, but he, I'm going to read kind of what I wrote, the first few paragraphs, and then we're going to go into the pros and cons and debate them. So uh, people measure their lives in different ways. Some measure it by how much money they have and what they can buy with it. Some measure it by the love of their friends and family. Some measure it by what they can create. Some measure it by having time for their faith or their hobbies and passions. And some people measure their lives based on the impact they've had on the world. To be clear, 95% of the people in the United States and 99% of people around the world do not have the luxury of measuring their lives by anything other than getting by. So this piece is really only applicable to the privileged few who can choose a career based on their interests and needs rather than solely what it takes to put food on the table. But for those of you in that small remaining group, you know, look, one, none of those measures are inherently better or worse than the others, even if some seem more noble than not. Look, if you believe you only live once and you don't believe in an afterlife, and that's the case with me, then the underlying goal is to maximize happiness through whatever formula works best for you. For, for me, it's impact, but not because I'm so wonderful, just because uh, I've got tons of ego and insecurity. So, um, you know, but, but because of that, I've kind of spanned a lot of different sectors. So if you kind of take my career overall, the time we spent in, in government politics, and then all, you know, starting with Uber and Tusk Strategies and all the stuff we've done in business, um, and then Tusk Philanthropies and, you know, voting and hunger and everything else. So get, given all of that, I, I feel like I'm reasonably well qualified to kind of list the pros and cons of each sector. Um, so uh, that's what I'm gonna do. But Bob, why don't you quickly give your bona fides as to why you also know what you're talking about here? Look, I'm not gonna claim at the outset that I know what I'm talking about here, but I have, if what you're asking about is have you involved yourself in public sector, private sector, nonprofits, you know, look, my background is a lot like yours. I worked in government, worked in the private sector, have done a lot over time, private sector and in government, working for public nonprofits. I'm on a couple boards, I've advised nonprofits for, you know, well over a decade. So I've seen the, the ins and outs of all of them. Cool. All right. So I'm just going to start listing out, you know, as I see it, pros or cons of, of things. And you can either say, yep, I agree, in which case we'll move on to the next one, or I see it a little differently, or I totally disagree. So the first segment is working in the public sector, and in this case, I mean kind of at a high appointee political level, not as a career civil servant. So the first pro... And I think maybe the most important bullet point in this entire document is you have the most scale. You can help the most people. Nothing else has the scale and scope of government. No other sector can take immediate action that can change the lives of millions or tens or even hundreds of millions of people. If scale is your top priority, only the public sector can truly meet your needs. Agree a thousand percent. And here's the reason why I say a thousand percent. State of New York's budget last year, $172 billion, one state. Obscene, by the way. Rockefeller Foundation, <laughs> yeah. big place, yeah. annual budget, around $170 million. So, right, so 1%. A a, a no, no, tenth of percent, percent right. a thousand times more scale for just two similarly situated so type things. So what do you think, okay, so if they're spending a thousand times more than Rockefeller, are they a thousand times more effective than Rockefeller? No. I mean, you know, you hit diminishing right. so marginal what's, what's returns. We're at 500, 200, where, where do you leave it? 
I, they might be. I mean, the challenge is what are you trying to get done? What the, New, the state of New York is trying to get done is make sure that everything works in every way for New Yorkers, right? Um, yeah, and very, and are they more very effect- abstract, you know, non-political way, yes. Right, in a very abstract way, including things like, you know, keeping the MTA running or whatever. Um, what is, what's the Rockefeller? They're trying to do a bunch of other little programmatic things. I mean, you know, obviously trying to help people with electricity in the third world and trying to close certain gaps, but they're trying to close limited programmatic gaps and do them more effectively. So it's yeah, like it's look, like shooting it in a narrow fun- aperture or, look, the more ultimate, effectively. Right. The ultimate example is someone that I worked for a lot and you worked for a little bit also in my Bloomberg um, in that, you know, Mike you know, was already worth billions of dollars when he ran for mayor. And I think he just understood that if he wanted to take any of his ideas or things he cared about and see them done at scale, it had to be at least on a, a citywide level. And look, the city of New York has a $100 billion budget, so it's sort of like a country and a city at the same time. Um, but yeah, same thing. And then when Mike ran for president, look, you know, obviously the campaign didn't, didn't go that well. Um, but I think the underlying reason why Mike wanted to be president was he felt like he could have that type of success and scale again, but at a national level. So yeah, I mean, it's sort of indisputable. Okay, so let's go to the next one then. Um, direct decision making. You're in the room where it happens to rip off Hamilton. Uh, by definition, you know, there's nothing quite like it. So, like, kind of agree on this one. Okay. Yes, there's like there is a point where an ultimate decision is made. Yep. Right on this recent green climate bill, there's a point on there's a point of decision where presumably Manchin to get his vote was in the room and said, "I need X," yeah. and there is no feeling like knowing that you have the ability to do that. Yeah. But like the disagree is in government, it's it's not a it's not a one time thing. It's a flow, right? The the laws that you make are going to get undone. That's the one number one thing I learned in government. Anything that you're proud of, wait five years and somebody will have pulled it back politically, right? So things will get undone and you have to keep fighting for things. So yes, you're in that decision making room and you have that moment which is like super. Super, from an ego standpoint, empowering, without question. Yeah, right. And like it's it's an evolving. And by the way, the kinds of people who take to it are people who really need a lot of change and a lot of action. Like I always kind of think that like if not for politics, half people I know would either be like junkies or gambling addicts or like something really bad because this gives them a fix. That's I wouldn't call it healthy, but it's less unhealthy than you know methamphetamine. Yeah, I mean. People who get into government and are willing to make the sacrifices that are, you're going to hit on the cons are action junkies. Without question, they want that control. They want to be there. Um, and look, I was in government. I admit it. I wanted to be there. There's nothing kind of as cool as watching something that you know is going to impact millions of people get done and being there and being able to, like, I don't know, do something to distract when, people to make it not happen or happen. You when know? you were deputy governor and you guys were doing the budget, one was Rod ever in the room? Well, so, like, let's talk about the room where it happens in the room. Like, was he in the room? Yes. When he was in the room, did it happen? No. No, no Because okay. when he was in the room, so like, nothing would get done, right? Right. So for the listeners, uh, state of Illinois, I had been deputy governor. Bob also was deputy governor. Um, and similar jobs, same boss, Rod Blagojevich. And, you know, I was kind of seeing if Bob's experience was similar to mine, which was Rod would be there in presence to a certain extent, mainly waste everyone's time. Or I would just basically negotiate on our behalf, and then whenever he wandered away is when we got shit done. 
Yeah, and like you have to cut down the narrow, you narrow down the number of issues that get done at any one time because everybody has limited bandwidth. You have multiple rooms where it happens, and that's one of the things that makes government cool because even the most junior person can be in a room where you get one sub issue done. Yeah, right, but it still affects It still people. affects millions of people. Yeah. All right, so next one, and I think it just fits into everything we were just said, but you know, working at high levels of government can be really exciting and really fast-paced and really fun. Yeah, I mean, look, you're, you're going to know this from the rod and from the Chuck stuff more than anything. You will be in the newspaper literally every day, and you'll have that moment of waking up at 6 o'clock in the morning and saying, I need to see what's in the paper because it's going to impact me. It's, it's going to impact my boss's mood, and it's going to like totally change the course of my day. Yeah. There's not another job out there, no matter what you do, where you're literally in the newspaper every day. Yeah, and you, so that, that already answers the last one, which is you, you feel relevant all the time. Right. right. So, so just uh, before we get to the cons, I would say when we go through the pros and cons of each, this may end up being the most consistent narrative. Like the value proposition is very clear, right? And like I think it's other ones are going to prove to be more nebulous is my guess. Yeah, and look, you've laid out the pros. Let me, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Knowing what you know, having laid out the pros, having talked it up, would you ever work in government again? Here's the problem. I don't think I could ever have a boss again. The only job that would be worth it for me is to be mayor, but I'm not electable. Um, I'm not an, I would not be an attractive candidate. So as a result, no, I'm boxed out. I guess like maybe White House Chief of Staff or something like that, cabinet member, but like, no, not really. There you go, so on to the cons, right? Yeah, all right, so uh, con number one. Every policy output is determined by a political input, always. So no matter how good your ideas are, if they're not beneficial to your boss politically, they won't happen. So I'm going to go on a limb here and say that I don't know that this is a con, right? Okay. So I, you, you accept it as true. You I accept it as true. I yeah. accept, I, not only do I accept it as true, like both you and I have based our career on the fact that that is true. Correct. And people need to understand it better. Yeah, I mean, look, that's the thesis, I would say, of... All of our work, our investing, our podcast, our classes, like everything. So, yeah. Yeah, but I don't think it's a con. Okay, why? So, and here's why I think it's good. I think at the end of the day, if you, like, believe in democracy at writ large, you have to assume that when you talk about things having a political impact, input, it means that things matter to people and people are willing to put politics on the line for it. You know, sure, there are, like, transaction costs and, like, grift and whatever else, like, Take it as a given. But the whole notion that there's a political input in here means that you're getting a feedback from people that the quote policies that people are talking about actually matter enough for people to care about. Yeah, but if the sample size is always small, completely skewed, and then treated as legitimate, which is exactly what happens, how is that a good thing? It, let me ask you this. What's the alternative? Is the alternative then an echo chamber of people with a certain kind of meritocratic background who make a, like, make a decision with each other about what they think the best choice is and then like, are able to input crypt, you know, like cryptically what they actually think will best suit them? I don't think that's a better choice. I mean, this is what at least we had, more democratic. Well, then let's make it even more democratic. What if we had a true liquid democracy where there were no elected representatives? It was purely that it's, it would be like how a DAO works, right? Like everything is up for self-governance. Everything is up for vote. 
it, whoever bothers to participate just like now, you know, has much more sway in the process, but there's never like an underlying politician. It, um, so know. here's the argument I would make back yeah. to you, which is what you just described is every policy input having a direct political input at that point, because everything is voted on at that point. It's all directly political. Yeah, I would love it because I like that. I'm completely, I'm completely pro-direct democracy as much as you can do it. Sure, you get a lot of people who are low information who make really stupid decisions. Yeah. But people, one of the best ways that people learn, I mean, like, you have kids, I have kids. The best way kids learn from not to do stupid stuff is to make mistakes themselves. Or read the New York Post every morning. <laughs> That's the second best way, absolutely. All right, next time. And I think, again, so a lot of these kind of one flowed right. We're going to need that in your parenting manual, Bradley. Yeah, the, exactly. the, uh, the New York Post reading rule. Um, it's the best way for Lyle to learn how not to behave because every day there's some asshole that did something offensive and, and, and you know wrong and they get excoriated in the post and every day I get to point out like how not to be. And then how often do you need to like really edit out something where there's something truly like disturbing in there? Well, or do you, you know, just roll through that? No, I roll through because we do on the iPad. So if there's like a you know, rape, there's a couple of things. But not, it's funny, not so much murder. But if there are things that seem very excessively violent and real, I kind of move past those. Or just upsetting, you know? Yeah, that's like half the news these days, right? Yeah, but look, it's not like, for someone Lyle's age, it's not like this is not something he's been confronted with in some other context. So there's not, I mean, you and I could come up with stories that are so bizarre that maybe we don't want to spend time on them. But it's really it's really those kind of stories. Otherwise, it's just like, yes, you know about this. You know that people get shot. All right, back to our regularly scheduled program. All right, so if you're working at a high level, your boss is likely an elected official. In my experience, 99% of elected officials can't live without the validation and attention that being in office gives them. It fills a deep, deep hole in their psyche. They will never, ever risk that to do the right thing. They care more about the press that they get, their fundraising, their poll numbers, than anything that you might think is important. This is a major limitation of the job and can be exceptionally frustrating. Agree that this is by far the most frustrating thing of the job. I would maybe say it a different way. And the, the challenge is the Mike paradigm, right? Which is 99% of the elected officials yeah. who are out there um, know that they could not do anything else as well. Yeah. They know that their job is on the line every two or four years. Yep. And they are like, as a result, they're incredibly hard to work for, incredibly idiosyncratic. Um, and people who run are better at running for something than making the decisions they're that are on the line. They're two separate jobs. That's they're the completely two separate jobs. And as a result of that, it's And in a maddening. weird way, in a weird, almost weirdly admirable way, the one person I met who like pretty much just openly acknowledged this and, and wasn't, you know, wasn't like totally hypocritical about it was Rob Blagojevich. He literally would say, at least to me, I don't know if you heard these, but like, I did my job. And, I, you know, like meaning I won the election. Now now it's your responsibility or your turn or whatever. Like literally didn't even, doesn't even, he didn't even entertain the notion that he should be actually running the government itself. Yeah, it's probably his best quality. Because uh, the people who <laughs> think that they got there based on their, on their policy acumen, like as much as a boss is much more infuriating. Yeah, especially when they don't know what they don't know. Right. Exactly. Right. Although, you know, there are different ways to handle that, right? So for me, when Rod didn't know what he didn't know, I would just start screaming at him, right? Which I think was a 
safer, in some ways, long-term safer approach because they didn't agree to stupid illegal shit that he would just propose sometimes just to get him off the phone, but also fucking just unpleasant 24 seven. Uh, I remember once, like about two years in, I just left for a week, uh, went out to Montauk, my firm's closest place, and stayed at Ed's place in the city, and like just debated whether I would go back to Illinois. Like Rob Gallagher and I took a walk in Central Park, and like after about three hours, he convinced me to go back, and I did. But up until then, you know, I wasn't willing to. So the point being, you know, you can fight or you can choose not to. They both have real. Yeah, and look, I went the other direction. And look, it, I think it's still public, right? There's probably 120 hours of tapes with me listening to Rod. And my the direction I went was the complete opposite, which was say, okay, 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 whatever. And then take the, take the bullet, make sure stuff didn't get done yeah. that was problematic, and then have to know that he was going to come back and ask me if he had the attention span later what happened to this thing? So and then would, you say, would the prosecutors say that your approach was inherently illegal or no? Um, the, I, the prosecutors had they objectively, imp objectively outside of was, the statute of limitations, yeah. they would not. They would say it was a hard question because it was very hard to be able to prove intent. I had some calls at the right times with the right issues where I said, "There's just no way you can do that." And I there was like a, a famous call where Rod's like. Shut up, Greenlee. I'll fire you if you don't do that. And I was like, go ahead and fire me. You know? I was like, I must have said that to him 500 times. <laughs> and it, was, it would shut him up every fucking time. Right. And it's like, but you know, it's like when you say that, then it's very hard to say you're part of an ongoing conspiracy. Right? So, like, no, I mean, no, they didn't say that. But, but like, prosecutorially, you want yeah. to be able to push as hard as you can. Right? Although, fair, to thinking of conspiracy, in fairness to Rod, he was paranoid. But they were also out to get him. They, Both they things were, were true simultaneously. Right. And it, yeah, yeah. some of the challenges, he confused fa fantasy and reality sometimes and made bad decisions. He, he confused, I mean, he confused fantasy and reality constantly. <laughs> um, and he made good decisions only sporadically as a result of the, com you know, of the fact that fantasy sometimes bled into reality. Do you guys, right. should you guys have like a group therapy sort of just like, like we Lukovic trauma? Although the I, funny yeah. thing is the way you guys talk about it, it actually sounds awesome. Like, it, like it, it doesn't sound awesome. traumatic. No, no, it now. was not awesome. It, it was, it was totally it traumatic when we had to go fucking meet with the FBI, testify in grand juries, trials. Yeah, it was terrible. Yeah, no, that doesn't sound let good. Me, but let me just say there were some, like, there were some moments when you look back, and, and yeah, there were bad times. It's expensive. It's painful. It's hard on your family. It's worrisome for things and reputation and all that. There were some moments that, looking back on it, were objectively awesome. There was a moment when Rod said. The way I'm going to get out of this whole thing is I'm going to get Obama to send me to Afghanistan and let me take out Osama bin Laden. <laughs> and when he had that conversation, it's on tape. It's it's there. Wait, you you're on it. the call for that? I'm on the call. He says that. And of course I said, I think that's an interesting idea. How much training are you going to use? <laughs> you're like, like, that was objectively an awesome moment. That I will tell you, I am a better as a person having experienced it. Did, did, he, did right. he continue down the line of it, or did he let it go? He let it go because I was like, "Are you sure you're like in shape for it?" He's like, "Have you ever seen me run?" And like, you know, I mean, it, it was like, you know, he was obsessed, as you probably know, with doing ride-alongs. I mean, he saw Cory yeah. Booker getting great press about it, and he's like, "I got to do that too." Like, so he's he like, would go to ride-alongs like where? 
he just wanted to like, like the ride along with the state like the well he couldn't do the Chicago because he's the governor so he'd have to do the state police and I was like you so you want to do ride alongs for roadside assistance in Lincoln tickets. Illinois yeah, like because that doesn't sound right. too hot to me Pull but over, your tail light is broken yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay pick it back All up right. rather sorry our government is another there's another con our government is broken there's a reason why Washington still hasn't taken meaningful action on most issues every elected official has to play to the base to win the next primary. Because of gerrymandering, only primaries matter 98% of the time. Primary turnout is low and basically consists of the ideological base and no one else. So until the structural problem is fixed, if you work in Congress or in almost any two-party legislative body or for an executive official with limited powers, getting meaningful things done is hard. Yeah, definitely a con. Not just a con for you and me. Literally anybody I talk to who's not a complete ideologue at this point, who's a rational person, on one side or the other says it's really hard to work in government right now. It's just, it's hard to get anything done. It's hard to get motivated in the day because you spend all your time fighting ideological fights and not trying to get stuff done. Yeah, right, everything's about optics. All right, next, next one, which I think is, is the last one in the, no, there's a lot of cons <laughs> All right, um, it's really ugly out there. Everyone and everything is polarized to the hilt. Everyone uses the most bombastic, moralistic, demeaning language for anything and everything. Social media makes the problem 100 times worse. Working at a high level of government, doing hard, meaningful things in the job means you will take a beating. Sort of. I mean, this one depends where you're at in the chain. If you are a public figure or make yourself a public figure, yeah. you are going to take a beating. And you either have thin skin or you don't, right? Um, and look, no, I mean, you know, it yeah, is, it is right. polarized. And at yeah. some point, and this is just true of, of anybody with a public persona. Yeah. If you have a public persona, you know that people are going to say things about you that you know do not reflect how you feel inside. And you either find a way to get comfortable with that or you don't. But yeah, it's, it is, it is objectively ugly out there. I'm not sure that's just a con for working in the Wait, did both sector. of you, when you were lieutenant governor, did you guys... Uh, or deputy governor, did you both get attacked in the press personally, or was it? Oh, I did all the time. Bradley did all the time. Oh, really? I did all the time. <laughs> I did. I mean, but partly because you know I had paved the way for Bob. So like, um, when I got there, I'm this 29 year old. New York Jew who knew nothing about Illinois or Chicago. Oh, so they just tortured you. And coming in to run their whole fucking state before, without them even realizing that the governor had no intention of governing whatsoever. So it was really to run the state. I didn't realize that at the time. Um, you know, that kind of came over time where he just wouldn't do stuff and you kind of just had to keep doing more and more to compensate. And you get to a point where you're like, oh, you're not involved in the governing process in really any way at all. Um, can I ask you uh, yeah. one other brief question? How many well-known politicians do you think have ever been like that? Is he just way far beyond anybody else? Or have there been other... Like in, in what way? Who, who just don't do the job. Who just do the public stuff and don't yeah. do anything. Yeah, I think there are... He's bottom of, quartile. But bottom he's but style. by no but, means the worst. Or top quartile, you mean. Well, top, <laughs> top in terms of not doing the yes, job, bottom yeah. in terms of doing the job. I think top, top decile. Right, maybe. There's a lot. I mean, the answer is there's a lot of people who don't care that much about governing. But right? people whose names we know well and who are like big time people. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, okay. there are certain jobs that are easier to not do things at than others. Right. I mean, being a senator requires very few votes. Requires getting reelected every six years. There's there are ways for you if you are good enough at getting elected to get there where you can do other things. Okay, sorry about that, Brad, yeah. go ahead. All right, 
the hours are very long, the pay is a lot lower than you can make in the private sector, burnout happens really fast. There's a reason most top officials only last two years. Uh, that is definitely a con. The work is, I mean, it's, it's like we were talking about earlier, the hours are incredibly long. As many hours as there are in a day, there are problems. Yeah. And sometimes longer, right? Yep. And the pay sucks. Uh, sucks. And you're being attacked publicly. And you're being attacked publicly. You're constantly. Yeah. What a wonderful job. And look, if you care <laughs> about your job, yeah. you're theoretically not worrying about your next job, right? Because the moment you start thinking, yeah. Like, what am I well, going to do next? That I, then you start look, doing a to, less of to, a good to job. To Rod's credit, one of the reasons he hired me, and I think it actually was, was pretty smart, was there was no way that I was going to move from New York to then spend being Illinois, especially Springfield. But I'm spending the rest of my life here, right? I was clearly going back to New York, which meant, like, I didn't give a fuck. Like, I wasn't ever going to lobby these people that I would need to, like, have good relationships with them. So I just, you know, did what I needed to do. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's right. Um, and that made it that made you effective at what you were trying to do. I mean, the challenge is not the like, use of the world is the people who say, you know what, I want to get a job as an insurance executive after this time for me to start thinking about what my policy and political choices are. So the insurance industry gets a pass. And that's so like, like what cinema just did. One could say something like that, yeah. right? Um, I mean, we're not talking about electeds ourselves right now. But let's say staffers, you have the same issue, yeah. right? Got your next All one right. on there. <laughs> Sorry. There's people outside. It's funny because it, it cuts both ways, right? So there's the window. And so there are people who... The window of the studio. Of the studio, mean, yeah. So like sometimes you know, people were watching you, but then sometimes like I just kind of get lost watching people, um, which is what happened just I, now. Look, thankfully, more people don't go into dessert bar. I would be mesmerized. There's an adult <laughs> sex dessert restaurant bar across the street from us. It's closed right now. Called Dessert Bar. I dessert think. Bar. Yeah. Is that the name? Yeah. Yeah, adults only. It says on the door. All right. You're part of a massive bureaucracy that intrinsically resists change. You have to turn the Titanic around to get anything done, and that takes endless work and even more endless internal conflict. It's exhausting. Slight pro, actually. Again, I mean, I the, the deep state, like everybody hates to hate the deep state. I'm kind of pro the deep state. There's a lot of... <laughs> This is so. Here's for me. Here's the pro. Here, if someone says to me, "Do you want to get into government?" Yeah. Like I'm thinking about it. What I say is, is there a particular thing that you are just completely passionate about that you would spend 20 years working on? Because if there is, you might actually be good at government because you can be one of these deep state people who just goes out there and makes sure your issue is something that gets worked on for years. Those are the people who last in government. The other people, like run out of it, get sick of it, and maybe it wasn't rewarding for them. So you have to, if you're the type of person for whom a massive bureaucracy works, maybe it's good for you. Yeah. Okay, Bradley, just before you move on to the next, yeah. do you want to just sum up like what, what you've talked about here? Because that's been a lot. Like what? Yeah, so the pros and cons of the public sector is, you can take all the pros and summarize them into one, one word. Bob considers all of it a pro. Right. The, Turns the, out the he's, he's going to have to run for governor. I, of I do not consider the pay to be a pro. I right. will say well, that just out, the, out the whole pro section was basically that you have maximized impact. And on the con side, it's that you have to work within the political system in a super fucking ugly, broken system where you're going to be paid poorly, work incredibly hard, and be attacked publicly all the time. Okay. Uh, so that's the pros and cons. Now we're on the nonprofit philanthropic world. Pros. Because you're not really running anything. You have the freedom to come up with big ideas, challenge norms, and try to upend the status quo. Many people in the sector may not take advantage of the opportunity to be truly creative and disruptive, but the opportunity is there nonetheless. 
completely agree with this one. If you have the creativity and you have a big idea and you can motivate people around it, yeah. maybe being in a nonprofit, and by the way, and you'll never make money off the idea, yeah. then maybe being a nonprofit is for you because being in government, you'll never get it done. Big change is not for government, and big change and big ideas will just get you frustrated. A nonprofit is totally your spite. Yeah, but the, what about the point earlier, though, about being in the room where it happened? If, if you're working at a nonprofit, you're not the one. If we believe that the true scale and scope only happens at the government level, and if uh, people who aren't working for the government aren't there to determine the final parameters where anything is, how is being a nonprofit better? So let's take your step back for a second. Let's say our step back, our goal here in life is to have the happiest possible life. Yeah. If you're a very big idea person yeah. and you're in government, you're going to be so fucking unhappy. You are going to be the most unhappy person because you are going to have to trade away your big ideas constantly to get results. Yeah. Your con political process is 100%. a process of, of, of negotiation. Big idea people are not negotiators. That's not how they got there. So you think they're They'd better be completely off unhappy. developing and pushing the concept from the nonprofit sector? Like yeah, you would being a like, thought leader or whatever you say. Yeah. Like coming up with the big ideas and talking about it, that is where you should be. Yeah. You should not be in the room where it happens because you will not be effective there and you will be incredibly unhappy. Bradley, would you say that working in the media is sort of a version of the nonprofit section? No. No? No, it's, it's just a bad for-profit business. It's not nonprofit. Right, but people take their, their, their profit motive and they channel it into something else, right? Isn't that kind well, of what people well, in media yes do? Yes and no. Uh, people... First of all, I would argue there's sort of two types of reporters, right? So there are the kind of people who are already elite who are saying, okay, I care so much about journalism that I'm going to choose a career that I know will pay a lot less money than if I went to work at Goldman Sachs. But all they're really saying is what creates greater utility and happiness for them is sort of the prestige or, you know, the influence of what they do rather than... Well, it could also be the enjoyment of the work, too, Maybe right? than the replacement cash. Although, you know, there's a lot of reporters who, like, it's just their fucking job. And, like, they didn't go to Yale, and they didn't go to Dalton, and just, like, and they're not thinking about it from that perspective. It, look, I would take a different way, which is I think being a reporter is another way of being in government. It's a lot of the benefit of the room where it happens without the government part of it. Maybe you just didn't want to get into government or maybe you had another way, but it's all the same. People who are reporters, my opinion, it's all about the action. Right. It's about the story and the, the action junkiness. And yeah, the pace also bad. So like, it's kind of like being in government, right? It's right. not like being in a nonprofit. People and, you know, reporters are not coming up with their own ideas. When they do that, they become columnists, right? Okay. Um... If you are well-resourced and have the money and influence to affect change, you have to do the work indirectly uh, since you need government to agree with your ideas, but money speaks loudly in politics. So if you're willing to aggressively combine the resources of philanthropy and the tactics of politics, you can be very effective. Mike Bloomberg's worked as mayor to ban smoking indoors in New York City, and then his foundation's work to pass the same laws all over the world is a good example. I sort of agree. I mean, it is... It's really hard to have the amount of money that government has. So, like, yes, you can be effective, but you've got to choose your swim lane. You can you can be effective on a small thing if you're willing to spend a lot of money on it. So, what 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 would be if you someone was starting like a foundation? They said, I, I actually want to have real change. 
how would you advise them to go about it? I would say look at what Mike Bloomberg did with smoking, which is like a non-negligible issue, but like also not the biggest issue in God's green earth and how much he spent to get that done, right? I mean, it's it's a really good case study of choosing an achievable problem, throwing an incredible amount of money at it, being persistent for years to get results. Yeah. Like that's, that's, it's a really good case study. You have to do something like that. Cool. All right. Uh, it's a more balanced life. Most people, nonprofits and foundations don't have to work 70 hours a week with a few notable exceptions. They're not being attacked on Twitter all day. The pay at the higher levels can be much better than you make in government. It works well for many people. I don't know that the pay is higher. Um, I, well, I don't like think a university know, president or something like that makes you know a million dollars, whereas it, the, the chancellor is not making 000. that much. I mean, it's like maybe, but it's same ballparkish. I mean, it's not that. Okay, so the money's not better. The headmaster, the, not, the money's not better, money. but the hours are better. <laughs> true, right. The hours are the hours are definitely better. The lifestyle is better, and you don't have you really just do not take the punishment. But if you are an action junkie, then how would you analyze it? If you were an action junkie and you found yourself, I mean, look, you see it all the time, right? This is where action junkie politicals end up in think tanks and they like run out of their screaming within two years to the next government job they can get because they're sick of the boredom. Yeah. Right? right. Totally. Totally. All right. Uh, last pro. It feels respectable. It feels like you're doing good. One of the biggest drivers of happiness is meeting and fulfillment. The nonprofit world offers a lot of opportunity to derive meaning from your work. Yes, pro. I mean, the people I know who are in nonprofits and last a long time in them are people who intrinsically feel good about feeling good. And maybe a little bit like politics, these are people who need the ego boost of being of having people think that they are, you know, they're doing good, right? Being respected in the community and whatever else. But this is definitely the pro. All right. So number one con, it can be really slow and really boring. Uh, most nonprofits and foundations operate at a snail's pace. If that's your speed, great. If not, you'll lose your mind quickly. That's what you just said. So yeah. we'll get to the yeah. next one. Uh, the nonprofit sector can be just as bureaucratic as the government. In fact, the nonprofit sector may be even more obsessed with process than anyone else. In my experience, the nonprofit sector is more obsessed with like bullshit quantitative metrics of establishing progress than government. Like government, if things go wrong, you'll know very quickly, right? Veterans homes, if somebody dies, you got a problem. Like, if you're a nonprofit and you're giving out grants, you come up with all of these completely abstruse methodologies to show that you're doing good, right? And it's like, it's oh, all process. You're the president of Touch Philanthropies. We don't do that. I, in fairness, I put an intern this summer on some of our work to see if we were actually, you know, we say this is how much we've made. One of the projects I wanted to say is let's go back and actually look at the budgets and let's see if they lasted for five years so that we can continue to make the claims we've had. And like by and large, plus or minus, we ended up in so, the same universe. Right. So when I say we've passed legislation in 18 states where about three, four million bucks of, of our money unlocked a billion and a half in new government funding for, for food in some way, and that affects about 12 million people, you say that largely? It's roughly right. right? Yeah. yeah. And it's roughly right. I mean, the challenge you get is like we passed some legislation six years ago. And the question is, did some of it get overturned yeah. within the six and, years? And, and like you have our, to check. Role, right? right. There are some states where, I mean, let's be honest, ha- half of this whole thing was universal school meals in California. We were definitely part of the campaign, but we weren't the main driver of it. Whereas universal school meals in Vermont or Maine uh, was us, you know, completely driving, pushing right? as hard as we could. Yeah. So there are yeah. there are things that I think we own more than others. Um, all right, you're often not that effective. Some foundations are good at producing real societal change, 
but the vast majority settle for playing on the outside margins, combine that with a general lack of understanding of how politics and government actually work, and you'll just be spinning your wheels for no purpose other than collecting a paycheck. Look, I would yeah. personally make the argument that probably a third of the nonprofits out there yeah. are existing strictly to keep paychecks for the people who are running them and that they they aren't getting that much yeah, done Yeah, you anymore. know, so one one data point on that is, remember I had uh, that business Kronos where we would build mm -hmm. digital archives? So, you know, really, really rich, family offices of really, really rich people always could seem like kind of the right place to go, their foundation or their family office. And they kind of did like the idea, and it was like, oh, we should honor dad or whatever with this archive. And then they never do it, because you know what? It, we couldn't build an archive for less than like two million bucks. And wow, there's my parents walking right by down the street. Sorry, <laughs> hello, hello. I don't know what's going on here. Um, Hopefully they're coming to buy books. Yeah, we'll sell them some books. All right, let's go to the next one. Um, you're constantly fundraising. Foundations don't have this problem, but they are often solely created for tax reasons rather than actual beliefs. Most nonprofits do not have enough money, so they're always stressed and always singing for their supper. I, so if you're going to say, what is the biggest con of working in a nonprofit? For me, people I've seen in nonprofits who came into it because they wanted to be feeling good about themselves yeah. find themselves constantly fundraising. Right. And, that and that's, they, I find it, they find it unhappy. It's really hard. You feel beholden, all the same. Like, you know when you said every political, you know, every policy outcome is a political input? Yeah. Completely the same issue here, right? Yeah. Every policy outcome is a donor input. And if you don't like that, you better not work in nonprofits. Yeah. All right. Private sector. Whew. All right. Should we summarize? The, the nonprofit, I think, was sort of, if you are aggressive, but not too aggressive, you can have real impact and change without losing your mind and getting bored, but you're definitely trading excitement and even money in return for lifestyle and balance. Well, let me let me ask you guys one quick question before we move on to the next one. Both of you are obviously involved in Tusk Philanthropy, so you have a, a, a more than a toe in, in the nonprofit world currently. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do in your work in that field to overcome some of these cons or some of these some of these drawbacks of of, of the of the world? Oh, and for, for us, and I'll, I'll speak for us. Uh, Bob should also jump in. If you look at the cons, they don't apply to us, right? So it can be really slow and extremely boring. Our foundation is not slow or boring at all um, because you run it like a business. Yeah, and we're because you have outputs have, that you demand. We have very specific goals and, and metrics for them, mm -hmm. and yeah, we we judge ourselves on the results. So we have, we have winning percentages. Um, can be just as bureaucratic as the government. We're not bureaucratic at all. Um, you're often not that effective. When it comes to hunger, we definitely are. When it comes to mobile voting, we will see because I mean we've certainly taken the ball down the field a long way, but it's still not ready for prime time yet. So we're not going to really know. Uh, constantly fundraising, nope, I'm just the donor. Now there's limitations to how much money ultimately I'm able to invest in this stuff or give to this stuff, but um, but nonetheless, uh, yeah, we don't have to fundraise. Okay. So yeah, I think as far as we're concerned, it's uh, just a, a different environment. It, and look, it's two, the philanthropy is weird because it's two really different projects. And the hunger project is 100% outcomes driven. It's outcomes, outcomes, outcomes. Do it fast. Run it like a political campaign, you know. And it's it is very different. The challenge with mobile voting and where Bradley says, "Look, it's not soup yet," which is true, is it's a lot of thought leadership. It's a lot of taking something that really needs to be done radically different 
in getting a lot of people to think about it differently. And that's harder. It's like, honestly, it sucks a lot of the time because you're getting the, you're getting the heck pounded out of you. Um, and it is, you know, it is going to take a lot of work to get the right technology to meet the concerns of people that are valid. Um, but look, we're working every day and getting there, and it's not like your traditional nonprofit because the pace is much faster and well, the level of intensity building, is much greater. Yeah, we're building you know, super encrypted, you know, Web three based technology. So, yeah. like, yeah, it's it's going to be pretty intense. All right, private sector pros. Number one. Consumers typically care more about products than they do about politics, so if you can create the right product that creates the right disruption, your impact can be vast and rapid. I'll say this one in a different way, that, but agree with you, which is if you have something that a product that people like, their lives are better, right? And yep. if you're working for a product that people care about and their lives are better, you have immediate impact. Yep, yep, that's a fair way to put it. Um, okay, number two, it's often more logical. Almost anything is more logical than politics, but market forces overall are kind of better understood, so you can kind of try to approach things in a more rational way. Yeah, I kind of con on this one. I mean, there's there are some businesses that are logical, yeah. but you know this, when a certain business gets to a certain size, it becomes bureaucratic, and a lot of the, quote, logical processes are only logical within the bureaucracy. Like, within the, like, yeah, totally. like if someone says to you, what what is, you know, logical about Meta's thought processes, you'd say almost nothing because there's so many inputs and so many stakeholders at this point that it's the internal, it's logical only within its internal place. And like, that's not really logical either. So yeah, some the like the fast growing companies that are really serving a need and it's their moment are completely logical and ruthless, but not everybody. Cool. Um, you usually make a lot more money than you would in government or nonprofits. That makes life easier. And despite what most people think, a high-level corporate job is still usually less insane than a high-level government job, parentheses, this does not apply to tech startups. <laughs> uh, everything that you wrote there is true. Um, Thank you. The, uh, it <laughs> not is, the usual lies. <laughs> <laughs> For once. No, I mean, it's a, For you, d you unquestionably make more money in the private sector than the public sector. That is unquestionable, and high-level corporate jobs are absolutely less insane than high-level government jobs, partially because your boss mm -hmm. is was got there because maybe not for all the right reasons, or maybe not like entirely rationally, but for reasons different than being elected to the office. Right. All right. Last one then. Last pro. You have the resources to really drive a concept or product and its adoption. Marketing, advertising, earned media, social media are all tools that you can use liberally to promote and affect change. Subject to the bureaucracy question above, right? If you're if you're in a big company and you have 50 different products that are out there, you have to fight tooth and nail to get the resources you want. But if yeah. you're good at what you do, yes, right. Right. All right, first con. The real point of what you're doing is to make money, not create societal change. The definition of a corporation is starting to veer away from the Milton Friedman de definition of producing profits for shareholders and nothing else. But the number of times you're going to focus on change is far fewer than in government or at nonprofits. Jesus, a long fucking question. Um, the solution here is to work for a company or a startup whose underlying financial success automatically results in societal change like telemedicine or clean energy, which is kind of what you already said before, Bob, which is like you have to align the goal of the corporation with something that you just see as societally beneficial. Um, 
And by doing that, uh, you know, sorry, now someone's just trying to get into the studio. It's kind of funny. There's a door on the yeah. studio that's not never, actually a door. never happened before. Someone tried to get. I, someone everybody's trying to, to come in. in and hang out with us, and I, <laughs> exactly. I don't know why it's never happened to you before, yeah, but it happens totally to me kind of a lot. Today is like <laughs> just other other settings. It happened well because we have like an industrious. We have this co-working space, and it's the same kind of door, and people are always trying to come in and hang out with us. <laughs> Wait, you work in a window all the time? Yeah, yeah, like kind of like this, and people are always trying to come in and like kind of hang out and like talk. I mean, now. I have like a futon there and like maybe it looks comfortable but yeah yeah for sure you lie down in your window I on your futon I lie down in front of people on on the futon and well yeah why do you think people come in <laughs> so quest answer to your so here here's my thought on on your last point just going going back to it yeah so there are everybody every business you work at is people buying stuff because they want to and people have good urges and they have bad urges right like that's life right if you are confident that what you are selling is um you know really resonating with the people's higher natures with things that they want and they want for the right reasons it's incredible like it's an incredible pro if you know that you're buying something for their lesser instincts because it makes their life easier because it makes them feel better about themselves than others yeah then i i, I could see how it would be um incredibly demotivating yeah yeah makes sense all right Unless you're a CEO or a prominent investor, you don't have that much influence over the rest of the world. Most high-level corporate workers are still nameless and faceless, so if you want some public attention, the corporate world may not be for you. So this is, and this is like completely true, and it's one of the reasons why you see so many CEOs wanting to get into politics, because they have done, literally, they, th they think they have own done Own a sports it, team too, right? Or own a sports team, which is like right. politics, but more fun, right? Do you think it's more fun? Uh, owning a sports team is definitely more fun than being in politics. Yes. If oh, I were right. given the choice between the two, yes. Bob, um, Bob owns a professional cornhole team. I, I not only own it, I'm an owner GM player. And it's, it's really rewarding. Yeah, he's our number one cornholer. Uh, I consider myself to be one of the... Like, if there were a cornhole Hall of Fame, I wouldn't be in it, but I might be in, like, be the Hall of Very, very Good, good Cornholers. Well, yeah, that's coming. We should put, yeah, we should I, put look, that on Yeah, look, if you have Ari's, a cornhole uh, ring, Ari, I will Ari, cornhole against anyone to start see. your job, cornhole's on the mix. All right. Um, but this is... Yeah. Just getting back to this. This is, like, this is really true. Like, govern, people in business constantly are ego-driven, yeah. and they constantly believe they have not gotten enough attention for all that they've done, yeah. and thus the need to go into, go into like, going there never happens until they've made enough money. Right. And it's true with the, I mean, it's true with the nonprofit world a little bit. I mean, a lot of, a lot of sort of hedge fund guys end up, like, you know, making these gigantic foundations and, you know, talking right. about that all the time. Tax purposes. You know what, and I, I think actually I'm going to skip the last two because I think that actually is a good way to close it out, and I think the, the high-level points that Bob and Hugh had just pointed made were really couple to cover the next two anyway. So, point here is, look, you can have impact in anything that you do. There's no right answer. But, uh, Bob, give me one last, thing, I guess, question then, which is, if you were going to work in all three, and if, if, you could, if you could plan what you would do when, so not the specific job, but what sector you'd be in at what point in your life, how would you structure it? So, it's funny. I... When I thought about this, I, like, yeah. I'm one of these people who thought about like how do you want to do things. I thought I would want in my life to go into government earlier. Yeah. So I'd have the experience, I'd, I'd use it, and then I would go kind of more private sector or later and not for, prob not for profit last. I'm not sure that's right. Um, I think 
and the, I think I would go not, I would go private sector first uh-huh. because you have to become you have to develop the professional and personal skills that are really effective in making you an effective person in other things. Yeah. Um, after that, I think I would probably go government. And then I would end up in non-for-profit because at some point you need to slow down and you can do that there. Right. Interesting. Yeah. I would I would take it slightly differently, which is I do think working in government like in my 20s and early and mid-30s was, was really great. Like I had an incredible amount of energy. Um, I didn't know what I didn't know in a lot of ways. So like shit that shouldn't have been achievable sometimes got were achieved, uh, was achieved, what the grammar is there, just because we didn't know better that we shouldn't be able to do it. Um, we had big ideas and we were able to push them through. So I loved it. Now, I maybe didn't have the exactly the totally typical experience, but I, I did find it to be really good. And then kind of mid-30s for a while making money because your priorities change. You start having children, like different things in your life happen. and all of a sudden generating income is a lot more important than it was. And then the question there is, you know, what are you going to do and what's your goal, right? So, like, people come to see me all the time for, you know, career advice or whatever it is. And the part of it, you first have to start with, like, what is it that you want, right? Like, for some people, it's, you know, I just want a good, steady, not too stressful living. Okay, fine. That's neither good nor bad. That's just, that's how we'll look at it then. For some people, it's like, I want to take a wild swing for the fences. Okay, cool. You know, that that that, that exists too. And, you know, a lot of people are, are kind of somewhere somewhere in between. So so we're sitting here in P&T Knitwear, which is sort of like a weird combination of, well, it has nothing to do with government, um, but it's a little bit between being a, a philanthropic effort and a, and, a, um, and a for-profit business. What's the... Besides just having it, right? So you have it now. What what's the point of the bookstore? What's the what's the you know if this is like a, a thing you're doing in yep. New York City? What what do you what do you want from it? I want to do a couple of things. One is, I just I love bookstores. There aren't enough of them. It's a tough way to make a living. So I thought, hey, if I could just put another good bookstore into the world into the city, like that will make people happy, right? Net so that's positive, number one. Right. Yeah, we're doing that. Number two is, you know, the studio that we're sitting in, um, we made that decision that we would not only build a podcast studio, but it would just be free to anyone to use. And then did our research and sort of found, and you looked into this, I looked into this. We kept trying to, like, make sure that we weren't wrong about this. Julie looked into it. Like, are we the only, as far as we know, podcast studio we could just work for free and apparently the answer seems to be yes so I think that's a community certainly one as nice as this too well (laughs) Well, and look it's proven itself out three or four people have tried to get in here just (laughs) as we started just because they disagree (laughs) they recognize you as the futon guy (laughs) from Chicago they disagree with your views on sort of non-profit status in the room Um, let me let me throw one in here because there's there's one thing that we never talked about because it wasn't a Bradley's article yeah and it's you know we talked about do you want to work in non-profit do you want to work in for-profit do you want to work in government we didn't talk anywhere about making art Right. And like, you know, that exercising that other party and there's there's a reason for that. Right. Like, I mean, there's a reason I wouldn't write that article, which is I'm not good at it. But, you know, part of it, even if you can't make art for yourself, there's a part of the aesthetic that's like important to people. Yeah. And like the bookstore speaks to that. Well, that's I think that's a really good point. Yeah. 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 I I think that's right. But I think at least the way that I saw we structured it was the three sectors. Right were a subset of the impact choice, right? Whereas we laid out money, love, 
what they can create. So art, like you just said, faith, hobbies and passions, impact. So yeah, I think that, that the stuff we're talking about is just one subset of what, what could be the right answer for you. All right. Um, we're going to chop this up into two episodes. We're going to we gonna let this rip on one. I think we'll, we're going to let it rip with Jack making the appropriate uh, edits. Thank you.